Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. You know, I always say one of the most important jobs as a leader is to define reality. You have to figure out what is really happening in your organization and in your business if you want to make it better. And today's guest is a leader who can show you how to do just that. The superintendent of the Miami-Dade County Public Schools, Alberto Carvalho. He leads the fourth largest school district in the nation. And believe me, it is one success story. But it sure wasn't when Alberto took charge. Schools were failing, the finances were an absolute mess, and there was a real lack of conviction in leadership positions. Alberto defined a tough reality at Miami-Dade, but once he understood what wasn't working, he used it as the foundation for their turnaround, and you'll hear exactly how he's done it. I just know that this conversation is going to give you the inspiration and courage you need to tackle whatever tough reality you may be facing right now. So here's my conversation with my good friend and soon to be yours, Alberto Carvalho. Alberto, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. Thanks, David. Really appreciate the opportunity. Let's get started. Okay. Well, you have huge challenge at Miami-Dade. I mean, it's it's a very unique uh, school district. Uh, give us a snapshot on what makes it so unique. Well, number one, uh, let's start with the fact that we are the fourth, soon-to-be third largest school system in America with over 350,000 students. Uh, coming from over 160 nations speaking in excess of 70 languages and dialects. Wow. Yeah, 74% of them are poor. Uh, 60,000 of them are English language learners uh, as recent immigrants, or they grew up in, uh, with families that did not speak English uh, at proficiency level. 11% of them uh, with one or more disabilities. So you put all of that together. Uh, and uh, most would say there's no way that this system could punch above its weight. There's no way that this system could exceed expectations. And the data at all levels, academic performance data, graduation data, post-secondary success data, uh, show otherwise. So it is possible that even when you're uh, in the face of impossible circumstances, and I think the key ingredient there is leadership and uh, and great teams that are actually are composed of leaders themselves. No question. And speaking of that, the rest of the country, you know, many people think that public education is one of the biggest, if not the biggest problem in in our country. And, and you know, what's your perspective on that? I, I don't think so. You know, I, David, I actually feel that public education is the basic foundation of enabling democracy in America. 90% of kids in America today are educated in public schools. 90% of kids 100 years ago in America were educated in public schools. And uh, But people see the demise. They don't, they don't believe that. They see things going the other way. Right. Uh, right. Do you or not? No. It's, and, and there's good reason for that. I mean, they look at America's standing in terms of reading proficiency, math proficiency, science proficiency internationally. They see the stagnation of the NAEP performance, which is the, the gold standard of American uh, assessment. I happen to be uh, a sitting board member of, of NAEP. And you see that for the better part of 30 years, America as a whole has not moved. 
But that same data shows that actually the poorest districts, most urban districts in the country have actually moved towards suburban America faster than suburban America has moved toward uh, alignment with their international counterparts. So is there a need for reform? Absolutely. And for that to happen, I'll tell you one thing. It's not just a matter of trimming around the edges. We really need to look at the insanity of funding education on the basis of mandated seat time. We need to look at education beyond schools. We need to look at empowering tools that expand learning opportunity, utilizing best-in-class technology, connectivity, digital content. We need to emphasize more parental choice and student choice as a means of adding relevance, rigor, and relationship. We need to emphasize the soft skills that today's economy requires. We need to emphasize the need for bilingualism uh, as a means of better training our kids. But to the extent that all we talk about is school governance and funding, we'll never get there. And that's the problem with American public education today. A lot of conversation about policy, a lot of conversation about governors, charter versus traditional, uh, a lot of conversation about funding, but very little conversation about the elements that are direct inputs to children's academic outcomes. Well, Alberta, you really fired me up there. And, uh, you know, usually I save my lightning round Q&A for the end, but I'm going to shift things up a little bit here because I want to get have people get to know you on a personal level. Uh, so let's let's get ready for a lightning round of Q&A. You set? I'm ready. What three words best describe you? Tough, compassionate, um, smart. If you could be one person for a day besides yourself, who would it be and why? Wow. That's a tough one. Um, you know, for one day, I'd love to be a virtuoso musician. <laughs> Not president, you know, I'd love to play an instrument at a high level of proficiency because that's something I don't do, don't know how to do. And, 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 and those people amaze me. So a great musician for one day. You know, let me... Let me be Drake for one day. Let me be Beethoven for one day. That 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 would suit me just fine. <laughs> Your biggest pet peeve? My biggest pet peeve is stupidity. It's, it's uh, associated with people knowing better and more than what they do through their words or their actions. It's also uh, a reflective of lack of courage, apathetic demeanor to life. How many languages are you fluent in? I'm fluent in five languages. I'm trying really hard to learn the sixth one, and that's Latin, uh, because I really do want to learn to read some of the, the classics in the native language, but five languages. Uh, tell us something about you that few people would know. Uh, I'm a very good paddleboarder, so I take to the waves and the water uh, on, a, on a surfboard with paddle or no paddle. Uh, and I'll give you another one. I was once homeless blocks away from the office where today I sit as superintendent. Oh, that's so awesome. Uh, do you have any hidden talents? Um, aside from uh, playing doorbells and the radio very well, uh, yeah, you know, I, 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 I'm, um, I think I'm a good poet. I'm not a good musician, but I have my own hidden poetry that I read, that I write, uh, and I've been writing for many years. And I think I'm a pretty good uh, athlete. You know, I was a wrestler and a star in, in my home country. Uh, and uh, But today, more water sports than anything else. <laughs> What's your most prized recognition you've received? You know, I was going to say National and Urban Superintendent of the Year, back-to-back. -back, uh, but uh, 
the most prized recognition, I think, uh, was uh, being knighted uh, by my home country of Portugal. Oh, um, excellent. Yeah, that to me was was very meaningful, particularly considering uh, my early existence in that country as a poor kid who never saw an opportunity and to uh, to be knighted uh, was uh, was very special, very, very special. Do your students have a nickname for you? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yes. Yeah, I'm the weatherman. <laughs> David, particularly the little kids when I go into schools because they see me on TV quite often. They think I'm the weatherman because I dress like the weatherman. <laughs> oh, that is fantastic. I want to now get into how you've really turned this system around because uh, you've certainly done that. You, you took over as superintendent in 2008, and, and you made the decision that you were going to reinvent the school system. Uh, what did reinvention mean to you? Well, when I became superintendent, we were facing three levels of bankruptcy. Number one, a financial bankruptcy made worse by the Great Recession of 2008-9-10. Florida was the last state in uh, and the last state out of that recession and uh, lacking a stable industry other than hospitality and farming. We were really hit hard. So our system, uh, shortly after I became superintendent, lost about $2 billion of revenue. Uh, to make matters worse, uh, as a result of some technical management deficiencies, that's a very polite way of saying people really screwed up. <laughs> yeah, there was an overestimation of revenues and an under-recognition of liabilities, particularly around the healthcare program, which was uh, overspending by as much as $73 million. And uh, that just added more to the financial bankruptcy level that we were facing. Secondly, we were facing an academic uh, bankruptcy. Uh, defined by a graduation rate that was as low as 53%, but some high schools with a graduation rate uh, as low as 36%. Uh, nine schools under a threat of shutdown by the state of Florida for performance, uh, for proficiency reading levels in mathematics were at 10 or less a percent, and uh, dozens of F-rated schools and D-rated schools. The third level of bankruptcy is what I call moral and ethical management uh, bankruptcy, which is when your core function is compromised side by side with the finances that fuel your core function. Then the leadership is bankrupt and the governance system is bankrupt. And uh, for me, incredible challenge, but quite frankly, was a diamond of an opportunity because things were so bad, anything we would do, we could blame it on the economy, we could blame it on circumstances around us outside of our control. So never allow a crisis to go to waste. Look for the opportunities that it actually leverages. And we certainly took advantage of that. And we decided to ride this tsunami of economic conditions as an opportunity to, number one, slay the sacred cows, two, to divest ourselves of poor performers as far as the workforce is concerned, renegotiate contracts, emphasizing on productivity, on results, on outcomes, not just inputs driven by time spent at work, and uh, reinvent the school system on the basis of choice, parental choice. So we went from a school system that basically offered a one-size-fits-all to one that prizes one-size-fits-none with 1,000 parental choices. So as uh, some in the country were complaining about 
charter schools and vouchers, we said the tsunami of choice is upon us. You cannot outswim it, outrun it, cannot dive under it. The only way to the only way to deal with it is by riding the top, surf it, and that we did. And uh, and today, David, look, graduation rates are ninety three point one percent. We have over one thousand choice programs, three years in a row that we are an A rated school, zero F rated schools, zero D rated schools, a best system in the country in advanced placement, college, uh, board, uh, coursework, best system in the country uh, as far as choice uh, through Magnet Schools of America, and award after award for financial management, and two, referenda passed right here in Miami, bringing in excess of $2 billion for teacher salaries, construction, and technology because of the results that we were able to amass. We turned them into political uh, uh, political opportunities with the voters in our community. That is absolutely fantastic and, and such good news for, uh, for America. I would expect with those kind of results and that kind of turnaround, you'd have a lot of other uh, superintendents coming and visiting you and figuring out what's going on. Is that the case? That is the case. And not just the uh, superintendents, school board members, ministers and secretaries of education from, uh, from other nations, uh, as well as commissioners of education from uh, different states. You know, everybody wants to know what the secret sauce is. Yeah. Where do you where do you go yourself now as you think about taking uh, your district to the next level? Where's your source of inspiration and learning? It's a it's a it's a very good and difficult question to answer uh, because um, some of the best practices now that we look at uh, are actually at the international level. So and we've become very good at actually looking at our challenges still where the gaps continue to exist and persist. And uh, we've become very surgical in our identification of possible solutions. So we're very intrigued, for example, uh, with the, the German, you know, career and technical uh, programming. We're very intrigued. We're very intrigued. Now we know the why and the how. Uh, how Finland uh, has remarkable student achievement results uh, in an environment that is 100 uh, percent uh, 100% uh, unionized and uh, a very liberal approach uh, to, to education. We're interested in Singapore's math results. We're interested in Shanghai's math results. We're very interested in Portugal's, in Portugal, graduation improvements over time. So we look certainly at best-in-class performers in this country. There are defying expectations. And Chicago has taught us some things. Uh, there are some best practices emanating out of Boston. We're also looking at the international landscape for very specific solutions to enduring challenges in Miami Bay. You know, uh, Alberto, that's that's fantastic. And, you know, all leaders need to really you know, be looking at specifically where you can go find the best practices on specific things, not just general. And, you know, uh, I, I want to get back to one of the things you mentioned earlier. You, you know, when you were turning around the system, you had to make some tough calls. As I understand it, you took out nine principals from underperforming schools. You know, uh, that's kind of seems like most people think that can't happen in education and that you just got to put up with the status quo. How did you go about doing that? And, and how do you hold people accountable today? Well, so uh, we needed to uh, be bold in what we would do uh, to, quite frankly, obtain results that were truly extraordinary 
very early on when the window of opportunity was wide open. And, um, and that window of opportunity uh, speaks to how, recent I, uh, how recently I had been appointed as superintendent, but also the economic conditions around us, which gave us, you know, powerful opportunities. Uh, and, uh, you know, leadership matters. Leadership matters. There are only about five things that really are important in education. And, you know, whether little Tyrone, Maria, Richard are able to read and compute is no longer a skill set deficiency. We know exactly what it takes. It's a will set conundrum. Do people have the political courage, the professional courage to do that, which is right for these kids? Or are you just going to go with the flow with the current because you do not want the blowback? So early on, uh, we recognize that uh, principals are the captains of our industry. And um, they hire teachers, they set the tone, they implement curriculum, they are the negotiators with the community and the business community surrounding their schools. And look, I remember having meetings with the nine principals of the nine schools that for decades had never been anything more than F4D. Graduation rates were low. And uh, in conversations with these individuals, they did not inspire in me, nor did they have a repertoire of data that would support them remaining in their position. So I fired nine principals within two weeks of being a superintendent. And uh, my God, you know, I remember the board chair threatening to fire me because in 90 years, they had not fired nine principals. So it was tough. Uh, I went through fire, survived, came out of the other end a little singed. But, you know, those, those experiences toughen you up. And uh, I kept going. And uh, in the next few years, we replaced through promotions, demotions, terminations, uh, over 80% of uh, Miami-Dade's leadership. Wow. Yeah. And we hired data-driven, strategic, uh, smart individuals who are courageous in embracing a tough agenda, are great executors, great implementers. But they're also very honest in terms of their own results, allowing for this continuous improvement approach to the work that forces a recalibration based on performance. You know, you've you've said, and and I quote, uh, ability is evenly distributed. However, access and opportunities aren't. You know, how has this mindset affected you and the actions you've taken as a leader? Yeah. So, David, I want to explain why that's so fundamentally important to me. And by the way, I, I'm not the, the original author of that pronouncement. There are many different variations of that. But look, we're all genetically and our children are genetically similar, identical, same number of chromosomes, which means that um, the ability, yeah, it, it, it is evenly and balanced in a balanced format distributed across all human beings. But your early access to opportunities, high-quality educational opportunities, a great teacher, a great principal, support networks, literacy at home, literacy at school, access to the arts and music, that is not guaranteed for every kid at the same level. And uh, this is where the issue of equity comes in. If you want equal results, you need disproportionate inputs that recognize the conditions that different kids face. Now, where does my uh, strong belief in this premise come from? My own growing up, I'm one of six kids who grew up in poverty. Mom and dad had no more than uh, six years of formal education, meaning neither one of them got past third grade. Dad was a, 
a custodian. Mom was a seamstress. And my five siblings did not graduate high school. Uh, I was the first and only one to graduate high school until years later, a much younger brother who's much like a son to me was able to do so. And today, because he had the opportunity, he had the, the access enabled for him. He's a medical doctor. So, you know, what was different between me and my siblings certainly was not intelligence, was not height. They're taller than I am. They're better. <laughs> uh, it was one of access, was one of someone being my intellectual chaperone, my mentor that allowed me to see a horizon that would stretch beyond my immediate circumstance and condition. And so that is exactly what uh, we do in Miami-Dade for every kid, is the power of recognizing the potential beyond your current circumstance must be taught, must be demonstrated. And that influences so much of everything we do in Miami. Oh, that's, that's great. You know, uh, Alberto, so much has changed the, the past couple of years. And what did you learn about your, your own personal leadership as you managed through COVID and continue to do so? So, you know, I have a facilitative leadership uh, sort of approach with my team. Um, I, I believe immensely in, in Abe Lincoln's team of rivals approach. Uh, surround yourself, whether they were foe or friend with the most remarkable minds who are the best at what they do and have them embrace a vision and subscribe to it. They don't have to subscribe to a king, but subscribe to a vision that is powerful. And uh, that's what we've done over the past 14 years. COVID did change things uh, because the protocols, the reality, the systems that we had in place uh, were not adaptable to the conditions that we were facing. So all of a sudden, time and space became irrelevant, right? So space schools, we could not go into them. Time, all of a sudden, if kids are not in school, in a physical space that's driven by transportation systems that need to get them to school at a certain time, they're not driven by the factory model of education, whistle to whistle, right? Interrupted by annoying as hell bells every hour. <laughs> if you take those pressures away, then time becomes much more flexible, particularly as you're relying on digital content and people doing work from uh, sites independently of schools. And that became a stress point at the beginning as we all pivoted to distance learning and virtual learning forced us to embrace new approaches to food distribution, considering the reliance of kids on the food at school, forced us to be much more nimble uh, in terms of providing connectivity and device empowerment so that could, kids could connect uh, with their teachers, uh, made us much more nimble in terms of developing systems of engaging parents and in the process helping parents navigate their own children's education. But I tell you one thing, within months, a few months, teachers became students all over again to learn the new modalities and the new approach to work. Three months after that, they are experts today. And if we had simply provided professional development incentives and conference attending, it would have taken years to get them to the skill set that they are at today. So sometimes, as I said, 
a massive, chaotic, uh, tectonic disruption forces people, if they are led by science, by fact, by determined leadership that is at the same time compassionate, forces people to gravitate to a better state of mind. And I think we saw that in Miami-Dade, certainly, and other districts. So, yeah, COVID-19 really challenged our leadership, our systems, and I think we're better for it. Now, you're better for it now, but it was rough going for sure. And, you know, a lot of people, particularly in schools, <laughs> districts that aren't like yours, think this has been a, lot, a lost year of education. What do you think? So there are two sides to that coin. On one hand, we have to recognize the, the powerful, debilitating, uh, unfinished learning, the academic regression uh, that preceded last summer. But then uh, with the summer where we always experience, when we always experience some degree of academic re- regression, that turning to a compound effect where particularly fragile communities uh, disproportionately were more impacted. So poor kids, students with disabilities, English language learners. We have seen across the country and in Miami-Dade a tremendous academic loss. But I am very confident. Uh, So in as much as we saw that academic loss, we saw an increase of skill set accumulation, particularly around the management of technology, virtual tools, uh, remote work, utilization of uh, of the technology to accelerate and simultaneously to remediate a student learning. Um, it is now empowered with those, those new skill sets that I believe the incline of uh, acceleration of each student towards their full potential will be seen. I guarantee you most of the country will experience either a U or a K uh, post-COVID academic recovery. K meaning everybody fell hard during the, the, the COVID pandemic. Kids who are empowered will move up very quickly and kids who are not empowered will continue to fall, K. You, uh, it was a progressive slow descent, but now there will be a progressive incline of performance. We're gonna be a V district. You know, we fell hard, but we have the potential, the tools, the know-how to recover very, very fast. And, uh, and I think that, yes, we need to recognize the academic regression that we've seen, but we also need to recognize that the recovery should not be predicted as being slow. The recovery can be, in fact, fast. After all, David, my leadership style is one that we is actually based on a, the Toyota way. You plan meticulously for as long as you need you develop an implementation schedule, but then you swiftly declare the rationale and swiftly deploy resources and conquer the territory. You know, I've never gotten on an airplane where the pilot says, folks, we're gonna try something new today. We're gonna take off slowly. No, you know, you have good engineering, you have good training, you have a good pilot. You take to the runway, take off fast lest you be impacted by the gravitational pull of the status quo. And that's something that cannot happen here. You are an absolute bureaucracy buster, it sounds like. Uh, How do you make that happen? And and how do you cascade that in your organization where people are on the lookout uh, for waste and, you know, inactivity? 
You know, every year we go through a, uh, a process where we analyze the outcomes of everything we do. And that means uh, self-driven uh, initiatives, but as well as private sector partnerships and contracts. Uh, we actually develop coefficients of uh, efficiency. So what's the efficacy of the implementation of any one program, uh, any one system uh, or input? And uh, one thing that I think we're courageous about is actually allowing this percolation, then downward flow of the methodology that we expect will be followed by managers, supervisors, and the workforce at all levels, which is to recognize that, look, regardless of the best of intention behind an investment, if the outcome is not there, uh, two things will happen. Either you cease that investment or you modify uh, the implementation. And I think that uh, we've spent quite a bit of time training middle-level management and high-level management on that practice. And then it's a matter of, you know, uh, training the teacher, training the workforce on how to implement that philosophy and that uh, leadership uh, approach. Secondly is, I think it's, it's reserved at my level to really slay uh, the high-level opposition to good management, good leadership. And I try to do that for, for my team. Uh, third is create conditions that in a very honest way reward those who embrace this, um, this vision-driven, results-driven approach while simultaneously in a compassionate but determined way identify those who don't and put them on a track that leads to two different destinations. One is professional development to remediate the lack or termination or progressive discipline. And uh, it, it really boggles the mind why, in my opinion, there aren't more people who do that. You know, I've surveyed, speaking about leadership, you know, how many principals lose their jobs across the country any given year? And it seems like everybody's excellent. Um, and we know not everybody's excellent. Yeah, so we ought to be respectful of uh, a professional's humanity but not at the expense of the children they serve. And that to me is the main leading factor that orients, quite frankly, the courage we need to have to lead. In addition to being tough-minded, uh, you're a true innovator. And, and, and I understand you've brought the idea of franchise schools to Miami-Dade. Now, being a former restaurant executive where we had all kinds of franchisees and franchises, I'd love to know how you've done that in the school business. <laughs> for, for many decades, uh, we had some degree of choice in Miami-Dade. So we had, right now, we have a number of schools on the U.S. News and World Report, best schools in America. But we always had a couple. <clears throat> the problem was that there were only a couple of schools in some of the most inaccessible areas in Miami-Dade. So the issue of access, equitable access, was made very difficult, just on a basis of distance. You know, our county, uh, our district uh, is 70 miles long, north-south, 35 miles wide, east-west. So unless you want to put kids on buses to go to some of these premier schools for two hours a day, they're never going to go. So... I'll give you one example. We have this Maritime Academy of Science and Technology, MAST Academy, on Key Biscayne, probably the best view any school has of America. It has Biscayne Bay on one side 
and the Atlantic Ocean on the other side. You see the beach, palm trees. I mean, terrific school, great uh, curriculum and choice program, high quality, nearly 100% graduation year after year. The question is, shouldn't every kid have the opportunity to go to a school like that? The problem is access to the school. So that was the very first school we franchised. So we took over a, a, a hospital that had been abandoned, acquired it at a very good price, acquired a building that used to be an office building, and we went through an extreme makeover, partnered with uh, a local public university for them to loan a space, utilized a, a school that had lost membership as a result of performance, and we created five different replicas of MAST with dedicated principals who shadowed the principal at MAST, understood the program. And overnight, we created five MASTs throughout the community with the same brand recognition, with the same promise of performance, with the same philosophy, with slight differences in terms of the curricular choice. Some specialize in engineering, robotics, uh, hardcore math, physics, science, astronomy, and uh, maritime or health sciences. And I'll tell you, just uh, within a couple of years, these schools actually began to outperform the original MAST. And a competition between the MAST franchises uh, began to take place. And I have to tell you that uh, this past year, MAST Academy at Hialeah, which is a very socioeconomically depressed area with a high percentage of English language learners, was the highest performing MAST in the history of MAST. So yes, franchising, great concepts, great products, great approaches, has worked in the private sector for a long time. I never seen any reason why it couldn't work in the public sector. And we have uh, proof and evidence of that. <laughs> That's outstanding. I love it. You know, I understand that in addition to being a superintendent, you're also the principal of what is called iPrep Academy. Can you tell us a little bit about the academy and what makes it special? And, and what made you create this school? So uh, iPrep Academy... Number one, I feel that uh, you, you ought to lead from the front. I, I don't lead from the rear. Uh, there's no bunker mentality where the general sits and looks at maps all day. I, I'd like to, empowered with today's tools, lead from the front. To the extent possible, I like to demonstrate that what I'm asking people to do, I myself am willing to do alongside them. So I still teach physics, and I am the principal and, uh, and founder of iPrep Academy, which was designed on the basis of an iPhone. So my daughter, when I first uh, got an iPhone years ago, she was mesmerized by it. And she said that I just love how I can walk, literally, figuratively, the iPhone through all of my needs. So simply by, you know, clicking on applications. And this is the coolest thing in the world. Inspired by my daughter, who did not like bells, who did not like traditional government-style school furniture or the food that we served, did not like to ask permission to go to the restroom, uh, and certainly did not like to ask permission to eat something or drink something. That's how iPrep was envisioned. A school that actually would be focused on the student, the student's needs, how they live, learn, entertain themselves, also empowering teachers, take them from the front of the classroom 
to the middle of the environment and rather than rote learning, uh, allow them to be knowledge facilitators and enablers. And then create all of this in a loud, colorful, student-designed environment where the technology is so, so important, but it does not seem that it is uh, indispensable, even though it is. So every student gets a device. Um, there are powerful algorithms behind the curtain that we see, but the student doesn't see. And the process is one that meets children, students where they are, and takes them to where they need to be in a very individualized, personalized way. It's a school with no bells where students can sit on a beanbag if they want. They can run a mile on a treadmill or on a stationary bike as they have their devices plugged in and they're doing simultaneously algebra or reading Shakespeare, where IKEA comfortable furniture has replaced much more expensive, uncomfortable industrial furniture. So that exchange of student responsibility for increased autonomy while empowering teachers to do what they do best has really revolutionized the school. And why not throw in some sushi and vegan meals for the kids who need it? You know, it doesn't cost any more. So that's I prep. <laughs> I, I, I love it. And that's a great example of choice. You've just given us two, you know, your franchise model and this. And, and you know, uh, would you mind telling our, our, our listeners exactly what a charter school is and and what the role of charter schools plays in, in your district? Because a lot, of, a lot of districts, it's sort of an either or. There isn't the right. magic of the end. Well, we've created innovation there, too. So charter schools are basically uh, schools that are publicly funded, but they are privately managed by entities that may be for-profit or not-for-profit as management companies. So they receive state funds. Uh, they have usually a lottery process by which they take in student membership, and uh, they relegate the management rather than the elected school board to a management entity that may be for-profit or not. Uh, in the state of Florida, the students follow the same standards, the same curriculum. Uh, teachers still need to be certified. Uh, aside from that, the management is very, very different. In charter schools, the vast majority of teachers are not unionized, as opposed to about 40 to 50 percent of teachers in the public school systems, not only in Miami-Dade, but across the state being unionized. That basically is the difference. Academic performance-wise, uh, there isn't in Miami-Dade a great deal of difference between charters and non-charters. And that's a testament to the competitive nature that the charter movement has inspired and instilled in our school system. As I said, we did not bemoan, we did not uh, go into the corner and just cry over the fact that charter schools were coming because we knew they would come. What we did do is that we put choice on steroids. And if we said, if choice is what parents want, we're going to reinvent ourselves into the best providers of choice, period, with a greater repertoire of choice, with better quality and better results. But David, we also did the unthinkable that put the National Teachers Union and the Charter Movement folks uh, against me simultaneously, which was if everybody is opening charter schools, guess what? We're going to open district managed charter schools as a hybrid model of education that has a foothold on both sides. And everybody, you know, typically teachers unions 
do not agree with charter management entities. On this one, these highly polarized, uh, you know, different ends of the spectrum were in agreement, which told me that I was doing absolutely the right thing. <laughs> so, so charters have provided competition. They have dramatically expanded choice. Um, and uh, I have not seen Miami-Dade suffer in performance as a result of that. With that said, we do fight for equal accountability requirements, which sometimes is unequal. But I'm not going to allow that to dominate the conversation as it has dominated the conversation in other parts of the country. You know, you have a great uh, relationship, as I understand it, with the teachers uh, union in, in, in Miami-Dade. You know, what makes that relationship work? What advice do you give to people in terms of working with unions? So obviously, number one, we do, not just with the teachers union, but with the seven unions that uh, represent the workforce. And uh, right now, we are probably the only system in the country that will begin the school year with every employee under contract yet again. And that's a function of two things. Number one, respectful, reasonable interactions, no surprises ever, intense ongoing conversations, a full embracing of strategic goals, a vision, a mission, and specific metrics that must be owned by our workforce alongside us. And because it is owned by the workforce, it must be owned also by the leadership of the workforce. But uh, equally important is the fact that uh, we value certain uh, elements for our workforce, including health care. So we have divested ourselves of for-profit uh, in interference with the health care needs of our employees. We are our own insurance company. We manage a self-insured platform, but the claims are administered by private sector entity which means we know the health of our employees. We manage the claims. That puts us in a position of controlling costs while still offering a healthcare, a free healthcare program for our employees. In addition to that, as I said earlier, the fact that we have had best-in-class results have allowed us to go back to our community and ask for additional support, whether it's for technology, for safety and security, for teacher salaries, or school construction. The teacher salary issue has gone a long way. I mean, we passed a, a billion-dollar referendum that allowed us to uh, reinvent the contract with the teachers and really put uh, compensation models in place that value productivity, results, but also acknowledge the commitment. And that put us in a position with uh, unionized labor that is very unlike anything else that I've seen in the country. So I don't surprise the presidents of the unions they don't surprise me. We engage in thoughtful conversations that always begin and end with student achievement. And if you do that, it is easy to rally support around those uh, imperatives. And having the community support it as well, uh, you know, is, is not a bad thing. So Absolutely. We're in a different place than most districts in the country. No question. You know, I love to get into how people make decisions, how leaders like yourself think things through. And I've seen you on television a lot, Alberto, lately, uh, you know, and and I know given the Delta variant, uh, you know, wearing masks has been an especially hot issue in the United States in terms of wearing masks in schools and and in particular in, in Florida. Uh, where did you end up and, and why? 
Well, on the issue of masks uh, uh, in schools, obviously, uh, and I think, again, it's a, it's a strong facet to leadership. Be data-informed. Uh, use your analytical power that is fueled by strong data inputs that originate from uh, really uh, real experts in field. So we created about a year ago a task force of public health and medical uh, experts, inclusive of not only immunologists, epidemiologists, but also pediatricians and the former under President Obama and current U.S. Surgeon General of the United States of America, Dr. Vivek Murthy, who is a graduate of our public school system. And we posed to them all of the situations, conditions, protocols, hypothetical scenarios that we could face. And what we accumulated uh, in, in, in response to our questions uh, was, quite frankly, a host of responses to possible scenarios, most of which uh, we have seen unfold before us. So on the issue of masks, it is number one sad that this issue has been so politicized, so radicalized, and so weaponized uh, for nothing more than political personal gain. Uh, we have remained steady uh, under the advice of our experts. And for me, it was an easy decision to make, despite the incredible political pressure and threat of consequence. Our decision is anyone in our school system that goes into an indoor environment has to wear a mask with appropriate accommodations based on medical endorsement and certainly inclusive of the challenges that students with disabilities, students who have an individual educational plan or a, 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 an ADA accommodation, as well as adults. There have to be accommodations made for those. And, uh, you know, I took this issue to my board, got a 7-1 nod uh, to move forward. And uh, we feel very comfortable. But look, I did not venture into this alone. I had experts. I had data behind me. I had a community that had been sensitized to rational pronouncements that became a cause of support for what I believe was an inevitable uh, conclusion and protocols moving forward. Well, that certainly makes sense to me. And it's proof positive that leaders have to have the courage to make tough decisions. You know, uh, Alberto, I want to thank you for your support of our Lead for Change leadership program in middle schools and high schools in your district, where we're teaching people, taking people with you skills and community service. What's your perspective on specifically teaching leadership in schools today? You know, if we don't teach them while they're young, quite frankly, the opportunity to really inculcate upon them uh, leadership skills, uh, really teaching them how to recognize uh, the opportunities that are sometimes hidden within the challenges before us, uh, recognizing strategy, uh, uh, you know, refining execution skills, and really having the honesty to recalibrate based on results. If you do not teach that from the time kids are in school, quite frankly, later in life, it will be much more difficult. And I think we've seen um, a couple of generations uh, where that has happened where, yeah, they're good workers, but they're not necessarily demonstrating or exemplifying great leadership skills. So this is about expanding the ceiling of opportunity uh, by teaching uh, the recognition of opportunities for the full manifestation of a strong leadership. And I think that starts early on in a kid's uh, school career. Well, Alberta, what you say is so, so true. And I know you're really busy, so we need to wrap this up. And I could keep going on because I've got so many more questions I'd like to ask you, but we do have to bring this to an end. And I'd like to ask you, 
what three bits of advice would you give aspiring leaders? Know who you are. Know what excites you. Find a place in an organization, in the field where you can marry who you are, your skill set, and the excitement about it. I've never met anyone who was terrifically successful at something they did not excel at and that they did not love. That's why you were successful, and that's why you're successful, David. You're an expert to what you do, but you have passion for it. And expertise and passion are unbeatable. You know, uh, you have a 24-7 job. Any advice on how to uh, balance competing priorities? Yes, look, there's always enough money and time to do that, which is important to the extent you prioritize it, to the extent you assign value to it, right? And not all things are equally valuable. And so uh, professionally speaking, I know exactly what the priorities are. They all begin with students and end with students. And everything needs to conform to that. At a personal level, you know what? Uh, getting good sleep, good rest, having good support of friends and family, making time for them, exercising, eating well, uh, cannot be abandoned for the sake of your professional life. And, um, and I think having that balance is important, critically important. I have to ask you, when did the light bulb go off for you that you said, I'm going to be an educator? I mean, when did, was there a, a magic time when that just happened and it just hit you straight? And you said, I got to do this. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not in that, a trained educator by, you know, through my college years. Uh, I have a degree in biological and biomedical sciences. I was going to be a medical doctor, maybe a PhD, MD. Uh, but uh, gross anatomy was more gross than anything else. So until I decided what I would do, uh, I said, you know, I'm going to teach. Uh, so I started teaching college physics, chemistry, uh, calculus, statistics. And uh, I said, I'll do this maybe for a year or two. And I got hooked. I got hooked at two levels. I loved the kids. And I was absolutely disturbed by some of the conditions and inflexibility uh, associated with systems. And uh, within my first, second year of teaching, I said, I'm going to be superintendent because I know how to change my classroom environment. And that has inspired me to change everyone's classroom environment for the benefit of kids. You know, and, and, and Alberto, I understand that, you know, you're obviously highly recruited. The New York School District came after you and you turned them down and you've decided to stay at Miami-Dade. Why is that? You know, I announced uh, not that long ago that... Uh, I, I've been superintendent of Miami-Dade for 14 years, um, and this is the one and only superintendency that I will have. Yes, I accepted for a brief period of time at the chancellor's position in New York City until this community really taught me a lesson. This community did something I didn't expect. They revolted against my uh, acceptance of the chancellor's position in New York. I've never felt anything like that. The community is saying, please don't leave us. We want you here. We need you here. You are breaking your promise to us. And uh, that weighed heavily on me. And uh, I'm glad I stayed because, my God, I would not have seen this district, district eliminating all F schools. I would not have seen this district being rated A for multiple years in a row. I would not have seen us pass a second referendum to honor teachers through adequate compensation. I would not have seen myself as... Uh, National Urban Superintendent of the Year. So at all levels, it was the right decision. But I have to tell you, it was a very emotional tug 
on the basis of a community saying, you're, you're divorcing us, and what do we do with the kids? You know, Alberta, I, I was looking forward to doing this podcast and having this conversation with you, and, and I just can't wait for people to hear this because I think you, you give us all hope of what's possible in our country and what we can do with public education. And I'm sure Miami-Dade is very happy you stayed. And I just wish we could bottle you up and put you in every every city in, in, in our country because we'd end up with uh, something better. And I do hope you run for political office someday. And when you do, let me know. I want to be your campaign manager. Thank you, Dave. It's always a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you for the, for the vision and leadership empowerment that you bring uh, to all of us. Wow, that was such an inspiring conversation. Alberto is proof positive that you can't fix what you don't understand. That's where you have to start. You have to understand what's really going on. And in Alberto's case, the picture was definitely not pretty. But he needed that clear picture of reality. It was the foundation for all the data and processes and tough decisions he's implemented that ultimately led their school district's incredible turnaround. This week, as part of your weekly personal development plan, I want you to look around your world as a leader and ask yourself, what is the reality in my business? What problems do you need to understand more fully? What area of your business do you need to measure differently? What specific insights do you need from your customers? Well, it all sounds simple enough, but defining reality takes time, energy, and courage to face the real facts. You have to be willing to look at your organization, warts and all, because that's the only way true transformation can happen. So do you want to know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that great leaders define reality. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you will become the best leader you can be.